This episode of the OT Podcast is supported by the Association of Optometrists, who want you to know that one in every 11 patients on an NHS waiting list in England is awaiting an ophthalmology appointment. That's over 600,000 people. Of those, more than 27,000 have been waiting for over a year. The AOP is calling on the government to take urgent action. We're facing a health emergency that is piling pressure on hospital eye departments, but community optometrists are trained and ready to help. We can step in to end this eye care crisis. With immediate action, we can cut wait times, improve outcomes for patients, and reduce preventable sight loss. The AOP's campaign, Sight Won't Wait, demands that the government acts now so that no one has to wait so long for an appointment that it risks preventable sight loss. Visit aop.org.uk slash site won't wait to find out more and support the AOP's campaign. Welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the third episode in the series and we're recording on the 6th of March 2023. You can listen to the other episodes with Nicola Logan and Ian Cameron on the OT website, on Apple or Spotify or wherever you usually get your podcasts. In our third episode, we'll be turning the spotlight on the patient experience by hearing from someone who is both a patient and a leader in the sector. My name's Kerry Smith-Janes. I'm the OT clinical multimedia editor. I'm also an optometrist. I work in independent practice in Lancashire. And also with me today... I'm Ian Beasley. I'm head of education for the AOP and clinical editor of Optometry Today. I'm also a visiting lecturer at Aston University and uh, an optometrist. So Kerry, just ahead of this podcast, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on my time in, in practice and just think about the patient experience and kind of realise that as optometrists, you, you get that patient that's booked in at nine o'clock in the morning and they may have a host of problems um, to deal with and you manage those to the best of your ability and then the patient leaves and then your next patient is waiting and you, and you crack on through the day. And there's always a risk that we, we don't think about the impact upon what could be perhaps a, a fairly devastating diagnosis on that previous patient and when they go back home, what that really means for the patient. And I think an example I, I can relate to is dry eye, which on, on the surface of it is, is, is a fairly trivial complaint, you might think. And we both would see several dry eye patients during a typical day, I'm sure. It, it wasn't until I had LASIK eye surgery and was slammed by dry eye that it really got me to, to think about that very next dry eye patient that came through my door and the impact upon that patient. And I think it changed the way I practiced, actually. Yeah. I don't know whether you've had any similar experiences in, in practice. One thing springs to mind, actually. There was, there was a, a gentleman um, about my age came in and he broke down in tears and he'd had an eye test fairly recently and he'd been told he had Fuchs endothelial dystrophy. And, of course, he'd gone home and Googled it and... and and he thought he was having a corneal graft and, you know, he was going to lose his sight. And and he was absolutely devastated. You know, I spent most of the exam time just trying to calm him down and put some perspective on the condition he had. And it, it was really quite mild. And to be honest, I've never seen a Fuchs endothelial dystrophy that was so bad it went onto a graft. Um, it does happen to people. But um, the moment patients go home, they'll Google what they've been told and, and of course, you know, draw their own conclusions about it. Um 
he went away feeling an awful lot happier. But we, we do have to be careful about how we say these things. I mean, every single day we tell somebody they've, they've got cataracts and, you know, maybe need to think a little bit more about that long-term impact and how they feel. I think that's uh, that's the perfect entry point to to introduce our, our guest for today. So, Keith, well, welcome to the the OT podcast. Before we dive in and and, and have a chat, I'll just do a, a more formal introduction, if if that's okay. Keith Valentine has twenty five years experience in the sight loss charity sector and is the chief executive of Fight for Sight, which is soon to be merged with Vision Foundation UK. Keith has previously been director of external affairs at the RNIB. Chief Executive of Vision UK and has been a trustee of Retina UK and Action for Blind People. And Keith's passion and drive comes not least from his personal experience of living with retinitis pigmentosa, causing him to lose his sight at the age of 36. So I'm delighted you've given up the time to join us this morning, Keith, and to share your experiences. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, the just in those trustee jobs, I uh... A couple of years ago, got to go on the board of the Turner Contemporary Gallery, which was, you know, if you think about the um, visual problems and you know the experiences of patients, it was quite something to to be able to get involved in an institution, principally there to use visual art to shape the community and society. So uh, everything is possible, even in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think your point about the Turner Contemporary Gallery is something that we'll we'll perhaps revisit a bit later on in in, in this discussion, Keith. But um, to begin with, would you would you mind just sharing your an overview of your your experience of, of losing your sight and how optometry featured in that journey? If you take us back to the to the beginning, really, I'm a chapter in a in an intergenerational experience of sight loss that I think to some extent shapes me in my early experience. So I, I was diagnosed when I was 11 years old, and um, it was a pretty grim experience. Uh, it was in, in ophthalmology in a, in a hospital in London. I won't say the name because the, uh, they'd probably be embarrassed that the doctor said to my mother that um, she should have me sterilised when I came of age to stop the spread of the the disease, which, you know, for um, somebody whose mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and according to Moorfields, back to 1850 before they lose track of us have been going blind. That, uh, you know, you think about it in those terms, the fact that I now have, you know, two kids, both with first university one of whom has the condition, has got night blindness and had a driving licence taken off her. So that, 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 that pivotal moment in time, the fact that it's still at the forefront of my mind now, just shows how, you know, how critical those moments of diagnosis are. And the bit of the story I never really tell about that is how I actually ended up in the, um, in the ophthalmologist appointment in the first place, because it, we had actually, as a family, been going to an optometrist at the bottom of Walthamstow Market to give it a bit of colour. So that's in north northeast London, near the longest uh, street market in, in Europe. Our family had been going there for years. So if you think like, you know, it's, it's, it's a group of people within which there was retinitis pigmentosa and a routine experience of, of you know, uh, often quite severe sight loss, but with a relationship with a local optometrist where, they didn't, you know, they knew there was something up for us and there were all sorts of processes of diagnosis and within the family about understanding what was going on with sight loss. But that optometrist knew our family in terms of our general eye health as well. So you mentioned, you know, cataracts and um, sort of glaucoma testing, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, that optometrist to our family was an essential part of us 
maintaining our general eye health so it's just not that we have an eye condition that's the one thing and then off we go and we live for the consequences and there's no treatments it's also that you know we've all of us myself included developed cataracts at different points in time was a detached retina there are other factors at play and and what i would say you know for me there's something fundamental about placing a value on sight which may sound unusual for somebody that's you know got very little sight left now and you know it will progress you know as i go through the next few years to lose light sensitivity and whatever else but actually big you know the, the way i look at it now and i think the way this has developed over my experience of sight loss is to place a value on the health of my eyes and preserving in any which way i can from my behaviors and choices um, the health of my eye and 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 that you know from the outset and i think from family culture was was very much linked back to his name was raj but can't remember his second name anyway the optometrist that, <laughs> that looked after us as a family and, and you know actually we we were going through Around the time I was diagnosed, there were there were things happening with with other d- diagnoses in my family. My grandmother's a lot at the time, and you know my mother were experiencing it. We all of us have Charles Bonnet syndrome, which is something an unusual effect in um, um, retinitis pigmentosa. So for those, um, Charles Bonnet syndrome is a is an effect of the loss of the macular field, which causes you to have vivid and at times quite grotesque hallucinations. The fact that we had someone connected to eye health in our community that knew our family was really really big for us at the time because the Whilst the, I think the care we received, particularly from Moorfields, was extraordinary, there were moments of quite brutal insensitivity in those experiences. And to some extent, that carries through to today. So my daughter, you know, she wears glasses and, you know, her relationship with her optometrist and eye health is, sounds like I'm really down on ophthalmologists here, I'm not doing an incredible job, but she gets a wider understanding of what's going on in the health of her eye than she may from those kind of quite pressurised short appointments in the hospital. So... From my point of view, you know, someone going blind sight has a, an incredible value. The relationship to eye health professionals, I think, becomes more important, not necessarily, as I say, just for your primary condition. Do you think we've made any progress since your diagnosis to your daughter's diagnosis? I mean, it has, has her experience been any better than yours at all? That's a very, very difficult thing for me to answer in a way that doesn't just purely build on personal experience you know i mean i I think there are definitely advances overall in diagnostic processes and the relationship between you know community eye health professionals gps and and the system and a sense of you know the impact of sight loss broadly is there i think with the existence of eye clinic liaison officers uh, in hospitals looking after people post-diagnosis so you know broadly yeah i think it's progressing individually our personal family experience no you know, um, I mean, I think the, the wider care, but the moment of diagnosis, I mean, you know, my uh, <laughs> my mother had a horrific experience with it, as did my grandmother. I had that experience, which principally was an impact on my mother. I didn't know what the word meant at the time. Um, and my daughter found out because they, you know, they were reading the results of her scans out in a corridor where she was sat alongside other people. You know, and she was just told they're sat in a corridor, you know, during lockdown when her family couldn't be with her, you know, and. Any father that, or parent that has to take the call of a child on a train on their own across London during a pandemic sobbing their heart out because they're going to go blind. I, you know, I don't know how I can, you know, answer that question in a way. You know, because I because I do think that there are constructive, there is definitely constructive process. I think there's a lot of work going on, particularly through um, some of the work that John Ashcroft's done at NHS England and you know Rob Cooper. In particular, RNOB starting to look at you know no diagnosis without support. So the principle of making sure the connection works is definite progress. I think there's definitely 
movement in the system. But I think to your point that you made in your introduction about, you know, somebody being in your chair and being upset about the conditions, they maybe know enough about the, uh, get the right information from the internet or, you know, all of those sorts of things. I th- I, you know, I, I think that there's, there are clearly still issues there. Part of it, I think, if I'm honest with you, is the pressure on the system. Because, I mean, the amount of time an ophthalmologist has to make a, you know, a clinical judgment and pass that news on and then move on to another patient is horrifically quickly. And I think that's really to do with pressures on the system. I don't think anyone goes into optometry or, or, or ophthalmology to damage patients by telling them about their eye health. You know, I think quite the opposite. But uh, increasingly, I mean, I think I, I loop back to my early family experiences and I feel the same now that there's, particularly if you've got a condition that's that's going to run through your life and that, you know, with RP short of, um, you know, us getting to trials and there being treatments available is, is really a matter of monitoring progress. And it's, it's really you know, the big challenge with one of those conditions that is currently untreatable is, is to find the way to live independently and progress in your community, with your family, economically, socially, all these sorts of things. And I think there's something really important about when you get on health conditions, not simply giving up on the relationship with optometry. You know, I think it's really, really important. I mean, for me, I, I, I do, it's, it's on my mind that, you know, every, uh, every three years now, every, <laughs> every now and again, or it used to be more frequent, you know, I'll go in, they'll daylight, you know, they'll, they'll say, read the chart in the hospital. And I'm like, what, what chart? And then you get your eyes dilated and you go through and probably you're a couple of hours in there through various treatments etc and I, I i you know i struggle to understand why i can't just go to an optometrist and get my pressure tested and you have a look just check there's not a detachment imminent or anything like that you know that, that, that would be something just for the convenience of life and the cost to the world that would be i think you know a, a dramatic improvement but it's not for someone like me to, <laughs> to try and redesign the sort of like primary and secondary care system but you know, from a patient experience, it's just clear. Ophthalmologists, you know, despite best efforts, really don't have the time to engage with patients. And I think probably some movement to periodic engagement with optometry to, to get that kind of relationship with eye health would be important. And Keith, you, you said earlier that you, you still retain some vision at present. So what are things like for you on a, on a day-to-day basis? What are those things that you can do, the challenges that you face and frustrations on a day-to-day basis i mean it's not it's not all it's not all bad you know i mean i've got a guide dog now that's been transformational for me um but that's not really to do with my eyes i mean i i've got i would describe it best as having confused vision it's like a you know if you were to punch and shatter a mirror and then take loads of the pieces out and then sort of put vaseline over most of the rest of it that would be the, the visual effect as the best that i can do in um in describing it but i do have some uh, unusually i think for rp i've got some sort of some of my peripheral field left which means that um, unfortunately for me they're they're in the lower and outer parts of vision so I've got some degree of navigable vision I mean people say to me all the time when well, you don't look blind I mean I don't know what that means really but I always try and take it as a compliment you know because I you know over time you train your eyes to follow voices you kind of think about how you're standing and positioning yourself to you know aside from anything else not to make people feel you know uncomfortable or that they're in an unusual situation in talking to you because of your sight loss but I think I, I'm born of a very, very solid East End family who had a very limited tolerance for people sitting around and feeling sorry for themselves. And despite the fact that some of the things that might happen to you in life with visual impairment give you every right to sit around for a bit and feel like it's a tough time. But, you know, I think I, I do think that the, the experience of my of sight loss in my family is quite varied in that I'm in the middle range of people. So some of us went blind in there 
late teens and some didn't go blind until their 60s when you could expect other age-related conditions perhaps to develop. So I'm in kind of that mid-range where it's happened in the middle of my working life. And for me, really, the the, the thing that's not comparable to previous generations is the technology is fundamentally um, different. I don't really don't know what I'd do without, you know, an iPad. And I'm still principally using Zoom and my peripheral vision to try and absorb information. And increasingly, that's that's really, really difficult. And I'm starting to use sound. I mean, the, the uh, I tried to dictate emails, but it doesn't understand my accent. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to improve the way I talk in order to <laughs> to get it to get it right. So I don't know, it's, it's kind of strange, because I feel like, you know, on the one hand, there's a good friend of mine, David Clark, who's just been appointed to the chief executive of the British Paralympian Association. And um, um, as I joked to him, I'm like, despite that, you're a top bloke, you know. <laughs> um, now he's been blind since birth. And, um, you know, we've had conversations over the years that, 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 that talk about that difference between him having a stable state with his eyes. So everything he's um, done in life technically and in work has been through sound. So that's that's the norm. Whereas for me, I, I, I guess I my norm is to work visually and you know the challenge i would say the biggest challenge for me in this period of my life is to let go of using vision to absorb information and move to sound and i'm trying i'm trying really hard and uh, if he was here now david clark would tell you i've been trying for you know for years and it's not i don't know it's the, the nature of the work that i do really that you know a lot of my work is about relationships and discussion of concepts and those sorts of things so it's not a point in my career where i'm necessarily other than getting through emails and whatever else having to do more technical things you know but it does present in the sense that i need you know as a chief executive of a company i need to have a, an in-depth overview of all of our finances and they're presented on spreadsheets and so i've got to figure out at the moment i'm just hanging on able to do it and to understand the information i, I you know first time i worked with someone that was born blind and they could understand a spreadsheet by listening to it i found that um, almost as if they'd done magic you know but like a lot of these things i think there's um resilience isn't just about coping with something that happened and it stays the same for me and for many people with degenerate conditions resilience is about recognizing you must adapt for good now so that change will be there all the time you're likely to have deterioration you're for me light sensitivity is significant you know the light conditions will impact the amount i'm able to um, in work terms absorb from information and um you know you've also got you know perception of those that might know you over time that they can see you going blind they'll notice intimately how that change happens and that's you know that's that's actually you know quite big and i, I you know i'll be honest it's exhausting you know i mean it, it you know, it's in order to get to the basic level of performance at work, you have to do a heap of a lot more than if you could see. Um, but what I would say is, you know, this, I don't think sight loss, sight loss is unique in that it's about the eyes, but there are plenty of conditions and situations where we're just as, you know, as colleagues, as, as you know, friends and family, we're having to overcome. And, you know, I don't want to mention the horrors of the last two or three years, but I think, it, you know, it tested all of us in, you know, in so many different ways. And I, I don't view what I might do as a visually impaired person to cope and get on with it and what the impact of that is on my tiredness is something that that, that, that that sets me apart from all of the other things that people, you know, in very many circumstances have to deal with. I think there's, you know, there's something, the profound thing about people that are blind that are getting on with life is that their humanity is structured in a way they're able to do it. And that's no different from any other person. Um, but yeah, I, 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 
I don't know that I'll ever come to terms with it. If I'm honest with you, I kind of it's about for me it's a battle to proceed and to get on with life and to get the most out of it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a season ticket holder at, uh, at the best of the North London football clubs. That's sadly not the most successful this season. Um, and you know, I, I you know I love it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be going up there tomorrow night to a game in the Champions League and I'll stick the earpiece in, soak up the atmosphere and listen to the game. Um, um, it's not the same as watching it. You can't get around that. But it's you learn to live in different ways. You know, I think that's, as I say, it's true true of so very many people. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't feel that there's anything exceptional. You know, in what I'm doing, all I'm doing is, is trying to play the hand I was dealt in the best way that I know how. When you, you said so many people, um, Fight for Sight highlighted there's two million people in the UK currently affected by sight loss, and this this number's set to double by 2050. I mean, you've alluded to your own personal experience, but um, you know, what is the state of the nation at the moment, and, and why are so many people with sight loss of working age not in work? What what are the problems, and how do we how do we provide that support? The only way to, I can see to look at it is, is that it's structural because it's it's so significant and protracted. And despite you know many efforts to try and address this, and I, I was following RNB, we were doing some work with business forums the other day, and you know there's you know clearly thinking start to happen about the relationship with industry and you know Vision Foundation, which is the charity that we're in the process of merging with at the moment, did a significant piece of work around you know the impact of unemployment on blind people as well as the you know the, the stats that are around it so there's you know there are efforts in play to try and address it but the figure doesn't move you know it's it's still the case the thing that really really stuns me is is that technology has come forward so far and actually the means for blind and visually impaired people to do the vast majority of jobs is in place so the question is then why are they not in the workforce in that, in that way. And I don't, you know, I don't have a simple answer for that. And it, so I, I am the only visually impaired chief executive of a national site, site loss charity, which is, it is what it is in a way, but it, it's, I think if you were to look at organizations working with LGBTQ plus um, groups or for women's groups or people from different ethnic backgrounds, you'd be stunned to look at leadership teams and boards and find, very few women in a women's organisation, you know, or, or otherwise. But it's it's simply the case that in um, sight loss, that there are the sight loss charity sector is, is, is significant under under representation. Would argue of, of blind and visually impaired people, given their intimate connection with the course. Now, like it might just be they don't want to work there, which is, <laughs> which is another thing. Whether it's a, a good place to work, and I, I mean, I'm into it, but I might be the odd one out, you know. Um, but it, it, you know, it, 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 to my mind, it, it, there is an issue issue of equity and equality at play. I think that um, I think it's it's kind of rare to find people that have a discriminatory, you know, an active prejudice discrimination against blind people because they're blind I, I don't think we're in that territory necessarily could be corrected by the evidence um but i've not seen it or seen evidence to support that but what's i think the um i mean the term unconscious bias is something that i've been kind of, sort of getting my head around recently anyway the way we operate but i think it is simply the case that um you know from the from the employer's side that it's easy to imagine what someone can't do and therefore write them off now, the extent that the impact of sight loss is also impacting people's uh, motivation, sense of confidence, resilience, ability to motivate themselves towards work, to cope with that additional effort that it takes to, basically in the world where we're, you know, we're all as information managers, you've got to be able to soak that up and make use of it. And 
you know, I, I think there's, cl- there's clearly something that's going on there. I mean, I felt it myself. I was fortunate that when my eyes went, I had a, I had a company and some assets to sell and could actually take the time out of my working life to, you know, to recover really and reset and then get on with what I needed to uh, need to do. But that's not available to everyone. You know, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm lucky in that I had family around me that had all gone blind and all worked, you know, and, uh, one of them was a butcher, actually. So I'm not sure how many fingers he had left at the end of his career. But you know, there's, there's, there's it's a really, really difficult thing. I mean, I, I profoundly believe that blind people are not just underrepresented in the general workforce, but that you, we should expect and aspire for there to be a far higher representation of blind people in the charity sector focused on sight loss. Because however much I get information from trusted sources about what's going on with sight loss, nothing but nothing has the clarity and authenticity of talking to somebody else that's gone through it and has lived experience. It's, you know, it's superpowers and supercharges, the ability to sort of digest and understand the potential for progress and how we might work to improve the quality of people's lives. And, you know, in the case of Fight for Sight, to, to drive up investment in research and to reach for treatments. And um, I, I'm, you know, to be really, really honest, I am reaching for a narrative that isn't con- confrontational or challenging in a way that tries to say well you know if people are to blame for this or any of that but i i, I you know the the stats simply don't lie you know it, it it cannot be right in the charity sector dedicated to support blind and visually impaired people that they are significantly underrepresented in the workforce now i i, I don't that doesn't mean necessarily i oh, will just hire people because they're blind i'm not i'm not, I'm not saying that i mean if fundamentally if the problem is attracting skilled people that have lived experience in the mix, then that's fair enough. It just means you need to take a longer, a longer run at it, you know, and and to take the time to work out how you develop those things. And you can probably tell I'm quite passionate about this part of it. I feel a huge responsibility, um, certainly in the coming years, in you know, in this role to, you know, to 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 do things personally and professionally to contribute to the improvement of this environment and to make sure that opportunities are open to all and that we have diverse workforces. But for me in particular, that people from diverse backgrounds with lived experience are getting the breaks, you know, getting the opportunities to, you know, to develop their careers. And, and you know, you, you, I'll be really honest, you know, the answer to why there aren't more blind people in leadership in the sight loss sector can't be an intern programme. That's a 20-year plan, you know, and I've seen plenty of 20-year plans in the last 20 years. And they haven't come to fruition, you know. And keep thinking about um, the role of Fight for Sight. Can you just provide a, a snapshot of, of the organisation? You know, how, how do you get your funding? How does that trickle down to, to where it needs to be? And, and what are the outputs of, of, of that funding? So Fight for Sight is, is the, the biggest of the um, national uh, charities that fund research into the um, treatment, prevention, cure of eye disease. Um, we've been around for some, there's a debate about whether it's 35 or 37 years, so I'll say 30 plus, and that gives that covers me. We, just this last month, distributed two and a half million pounds into a variety of different research areas. I mean, the most exciting of which I found in listening to all of them was the genetics research, which really does seem to, to be going you know, to another level. I mean, the money comes from the generosity of the public. It's as simple as that. You know, we have no there's no, there's no other cunning route to, you know, to, to secure the investment that we need. It, it comes literally from people's generosity, which is, um, you know, again, I think utterly inspirational for me. The kind of, you know, from from you know people that run a marathon for us all the way through to people 
leaving us legacies or making regular donations you know there's 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 definitely a community of cause gathering around around fight for sight and and you know, in, in all honesty that's been with us through the pandemic and um is now you know we're, we're overperforming against market trends with our with our fundraising and i think that's something that must give my team absolute and utter conviction to execute the distribution of that money into the science effectively because you know we have the trust of the public with us in terms of our distribution we're part of the association of medical research charities so we have a regulated approach to distribution we have peer review bodies and a college of experts we have some of the leading thinkers researchers and ophthalmologists uh, in the world involved in our selection process and we're we're funding some really really exciting science so we've got about the current numbers about nine million pounds out at the moment in various areas of research what i would say to that in terms of scale, it's 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 it's, a, it's not a matter of pride that we're the biggest. It's it's a matter of some frustration because if you look at sectors like heart, dementia, um, cancer, stroke, etc., it's often the research charities that are uh, the ones with scale and able to invest in the science in a way that really is sort of breaking new ground and 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 taking research forward to treatments and. The total value of the charity sector investing in in eye research annually is around fifteen million pounds. If you put all of them, all of the group together, and it feels given the two million impacted by sight loss, but then eye health being so critical to the country's economy and social inclusion, all these sorts of things, that um, it you know it feels to me that's not at the right level. That really there should be a a wider pact with government and with population to. You know, to advance the science. And I, I would broaden that not just in ophthalmology. I think there's the potential for that relationship, particularly around data and AI and the scanning potential. So the eye scanning potential, retinal scanning potential that's there in the optometric network and various other things where I, I think there's a, you know, there's a need you know, investment from the charity sector can do the things that it's not commercially viable um, to do for pharmaceutical companies and, and, and really kind of elevate and accelerate the, the, the progress of the science. So certainly in our forward-facing research strategy, we've got a far wider view of, of, of where that money can be spent in the framework of our regulated grant programme. But it, it, it's, it's, it's an organisation that will always be a funder. And our, our merger with Vision Foundation, which is a social impact funder, so they, as I mentioned before, they fund projects around those critical impacting issues for blind and visually impaired people. You know, this merger is really to create, to start to create that grant funding force that you see absolutely paramount in other disability and disease areas. And it's an exciting step forward for us because it, it you know, it builds up the infrastructure of the charity. We'll have a, you know, a chain of shops. We'll have, um, you know, a community of donors that are very much committed to people being able to live independently and to confront some of the areas of, of discrimination. And, you know, some of the research is, is quite stunning. Um you know, one of the things we're working on together as our first project as we move into merger is to look at the higher levels of likelihood of domestic violence experienced by visually impaired people, which is, you know, I recommend everyone go to the Vision Foundation website and look at some of this research. It's utterly stunning. You're 12 times more likely to be a victim of domestic violence, but also, you know, likely to often find um, the services just can't adapt to you. That There's no there's no understanding of that um, differentiation in the way that the support sector works. So, so anyway, look, look, there's, there's there's big and important stuff to do, and stuff that's kind of not not to be just thrown around lightly, but the sort of critical importance in the way that um, you know it, it, it's that kind of sort of revelation is addressed. And I, I, you know, my firm belief is that this partnership between Vision Foundation and Fight for Sight, which is framed as Safe Sight, Change Lives, 
will create a new force for funding innovation. And particularly because, you know, Fight for Sight and Similarly Vision Foundation aren't, aren't out there to build up their own infrastructure and have hundreds of people. And, you know, our first priority is in our own sustainability. Our first priority is the sustainability of the investment in innovation and progress. So, you know, it's on us to keep our team small, to be efficient. And as I said there, you know, honour the trust that the public give us to not just do the right thing because it feels right, but do the right thing because we can prove the impact of what we do with our investment. Is the um, the cost of living crisis impacting that? Do you have to sort of work ever harder to get people to to still dig deep and, and, and fund? Or you say you're outperforming the, the sector in terms of your funding, but is, is it more of a battle, would you say? It's been a tough period for that long, but it's, I don't know if it's perennially a tough period now. Certainly, I think that the way that we are achieving that performance is is, is by being utterly ruthless in making sure that our data quality is is where it needs to be that we 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 know the people that give us money well and that we have a relationship with them and we keep communicating um and that we you know i, I use the word community in a number of different sets but the you know the community around fight for sight and vision foundation is a very dedicated group of donors so the critical thing for me is you know, twofold make sure we're efficient communicating well you know the consequence of what we're investing you know of the investments that we've made um, with money but also i think impact is everything for us so we, we exist for the impact we're not our ask isn't for people to you know, give us money to fund you know big services all those sorts of things and, and there's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that and the services are needed so it's not a critique of that but i think we've got a kind of different offer um certainly on the fight for science side there's 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 not really any you know, there are other research charities, you know, that, that I would, you know, I would absolutely support and give to myself, actually. I was involved in Retina UK for some time and, you know, they're, they're doing incredible work there. But there's, 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 you know, there's something about the authenticity of the offer that, that, that for the kind of donors, donor base that we are um, building up really appreciate, that they can see the money that they give us is being, you know, through definite processes is being put to a specific cause and that's you know in the science and increasingly with vision foundation that will be in funding innovation for the improvement of you know of lives and, and i think that it's that i think it's that differentiation um without any critique or criticism of the other organizations you know it's, it's really really great that we've got um service organizations out there doing business you know i've benefited from it myself i have a guide dog you know <laughs> but um yeah i think it's I, yeah I, I, I don't know there's something in the mix i think there's there's um, you know, there's been a lot of technical work we've done to get there as well. You know, we've we've got a very very good team working on making sure that we've, you know, the donors that we have got are well looked after, that we understand um, them as people and not just income figures, and that we, as I say, we communicate who we are and what we are very openly. And I think I'm, you know, what I'm part of doing that as well. You know, I, I don't know how unusual it is for someone in a chief exec's position, but you know, I'm often asked to talk about something i'm going through as a patient which is what we're doing here today i'm happy and pleased to do that i feel it's part of the responsibility but i think you know what what we get as an organization from that and very many colleagues that are able to communicate in the same way is is you know is the truth of us you know we've got nothing to hide we're a very simple mechanism we're asking for people to uh, make contributions to something that, that, that that will have a very very clear effect and we do that as efficiently as possible um, and I think that's that's part of why we're able to be, you know, <laughs> overperforming in the context of the market. You know, I mean, can we improve? Yes, of course we can. You know, there's always room for growth. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm here and the merger's happening is we want to do more. You know, we want to build that force for research and 
investment and innovation in in the sight loss sector in a way that's kind of you know absent and it's it, it's 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 a, it's a peculiar thing in a way that the two critical questions that occur when you get a diagnosis of sight loss and i'd, I'd argue this is for other conditions as well but for sight loss are can you stop this happening how do i live my life those those the intimately connected in the experience of diagnosis or the diagnosis of your child and how that prognosis then falls out how you how you actually then go on to live your life what your relationship to treatment is if it's possible what your understanding is of the development of new treatments and trials and getting about all these you know all these sorts of things and yet that kind of can you stop this happening part of it is just nowhere near the comparable scale that you see in, in you know in other disease areas and that's that's where i am in terms of the science and my team are at is starting to conceive of well let's look at those other sectors and understand why that differentials there it, it it can't be the case in the modern environment with the science progressing as it is that we are simply saying there's nothing that can be done for you. In fact, perhaps it's a bit of a defeat if you kind of think that something might be done for you. Forget all that. Get on with your life. We'll support you. Now, I, I think that's all fine, except for the forget about that bit. You know, I don't. I think it's perfectly natural for me as a, as a person with sight loss to be thinking, you know, I'd like them at least to slow it down. You know, I, you know, I place a value on sight and that's important to me. So... I think that I think we're a new voice. You know, I, I, I do. I genuinely think that there's there's something sadly new in us starting to talk about the interests of visually impaired people in research and treatment as powerfully, if you like, as as, as the need to secure independence and, and equity. I don't feel any need to have to choose between the two. I think those, you know, can you stop it happening? How do I live my life? Is intimate, is deep rooted, and is there for everyone that's experiencing sight loss. I got diagnosed with diabetes last year and I literally was sat in the chair and the guy said to me, well, this is, this is what's going on for you. And I, and I said, can you stop it happening? And uh, how am I going to cope with this? And I thought, oh my God, I'm my own focus group. You know? <laughs> I don't know if I just believe my own propaganda. That could be another way. <laughs> you alluded to um, some genetic research that's going on at the moment. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about what the scientists are working on at the moment and, and any of the sort of advancements and successes so far yeah i mean there are i mean it's such a wide field and there's so much going on i think that the the the, the, the bit that i'm kind of i'm particularly sort of exercised about at the moment is something called crispr gene editing which is a you know a mechanism by which you can forensically um identify and edit genes to work for uh treatments for eye disease but i mean it also applies in in wider fields so what I would say, um, I will cautiously step away from saying anything that would give anyone false hope. In what I would say is that the um, the potential picking on gene technology in other areas as well, picking on gene technology in, in particular, that there are advances coming in multiple disease fields and condition areas that are a result of, of, of a certain range of, of, of gene editing technologies. And I think that that for me is where you, in that field alone, and there'll be other areas where you can see that you know you you're you're in reach of processes procedures techniques and technologies that will start to have multiple impacts in in different areas what's unpredictable is the areas they'll be successful and i think that particularly for fight for sight we're very often investing in early stage research we're in that space where commercial interests dare not tread as a consequence of that many of the things that we'll invest in will not necessarily come to fruition in in real time in the next two or three years but I, the general trend talking to the sort of leading figures in ophthalmological research um you know recently manchester oxford ucl etc there's there's the, you know there is a sense that there is huge potential that the 
impact of the COVID period, they offset it, the impact of the last two or three years, you know, has been difficult in the system, but the, the recovery from that is starting to really, really build. It, it, one of the things that's interesting from our point of view is starting to look away from, well, not look away, to, to, to continue investing at the same level in specific research areas, but then to look at some of the problems that might exist for the infrastructure as a whole, which is, isn't quite as sexy as me saying, oh, wow, we've got this injection that's going to do X, Y, and Z, or some other snake oil I might come up with, you know, but but thinking about how we get the the best talent, the best scientific and research talent to to go in ophthalmology, given that the investment levels at times are not where you want them to be in compared to other areas. And, you know, that's kind of twofold for us. One of that is making sure that actually a lot of our investment goes towards making sure the PhD students stick with ophthalmology and go into fellowships. And we build that kind of critical mass of talent behind ophthalmology. And then in parallel to that, we're increasingly investing alongside other charities in, in those areas of comorbidity. I mean, the obvious one to point to is diabetes and retinopathy and, you know, what the relationship is between eyes and that condition. But it's also true of stroke, heart and um, dementia and very other areas. So, you, you know, I, I'm not just expecting leap forwards, leaps forward in terms of specific techniques. I'm also um, thinking a lot at the moment about what role a charity like ours might play in building that workforce for the next 10 years that can guarantee, as far as anything can be guaranteed, progress. But it's tough. I'm not going to pretend that it's, you know, anything's going to drop out of the sky tomorrow and it'd be wrong to to give false hope. But I think there's there's room for informed optimism, if I can put it like that. Keith, I, I wonder if we could perhaps close by circling back to, to one of your earlier points about your role as a, a trustee of the Turner Contemporary Gallery. Can you just, sh- Kerry and I were chatting about this earlier and we're just both, both intrigued about what the experience is like um, for, of art for people with, with, with sight loss and what, what you what you get from that experience. Like everything with sight loss, it's, it's, it's kind of different and, and might look weird at first. I mean, I, I just to say that my... So I'm, I'm, I'm as well as being visually impaired, I come from quite a difficult background in London and I went to a difficult school and the privilege of being there as well as the disadvantage of it was that there were teachers that were socially very, very committed and I had a, uh, an art teacher, Val Hill, who made the effort to take someone like me and my rather troublesome classmates um, to the Tate Gallery. Um, not somewhere I would ever have gone. You know, that sort of visit wasn't in my family's heritage or culture, particularly. It gave me a sense of another world that was possible. And regardless of the prospect of going blind or whatever else, there was, you know, just something about you know, other, other ways of living, if you like, than I could see immediately around me as I was as I was growing up. And from that moment, art was intimately connected with my um, outlook on on you know wider and elevated, not to sound experiences of life. And uh, you know, I, I um, it's always been important to me. And I'm very lucky that I have a house at Broadstairs in Kent, which is out near the uh, Turner Contemporary Gallery, which is, I think, um, quite famous in its in, in in the you know not just in the cultural scene. I think I often say to people that I'm involved in it, and they, uh, you know, they're quite. It's like wow, really, you know, it's it's um, it's quite a thing. Um, so I don't, you know, I I I, I didn't want to go on the board because I'm going blind, and you know, there's some kind of kick about a blind guy being involved in visual arts, you know, but I wanted to go there because I believe that art can be transformational for, um, for place, for geography, for people and, uh, and for progress. And certainly, you know, it's been a pivotal part, not just in its presentation of international quality 
art, it's also been pivotal in its role in relationship to communities that I very, very much recognise from the experiences I had um, growing up. So there's something in the mix here, but it's unavoidable that it's kind of unusual for someone that's, that, that can't see the work to, um, you know, to be part of that. Um, and that's really me as a customer or a visitor or you're not a service user or an art gallery. I suppose it depends on the gallery. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, the business of running an organisation is the business of running an organisation. I'm getting a kick out of it from that point of view because I really, really believe that gallery is going to be part of the transformation of an area that's economically deprived and, and that's all the problems that, that go with it. But also, they're fantastic. In If you visit the Turner Contemporary with disabilities, everybody's welcome. It's somewhere where the staff will um, wrap around to help you enjoy the experience and, you know, there are descriptions and uh, i mean actually I'm, i don't know if i'm privileged because a couple of times i've been and, and the guys have taken me around an, ex- an exhibition personally so i'm not going to guarantee that can happen for everybody i don't know if it's just there because uh, i guess i get to vote on the finance committee what's going on i don't know but um you know I, I it's a bit like i was saying about football and you know football and art probably two extremes but there's you know learning to learning to live the world through sound and fortunately i'm also you know, there's there's where it's at all possible. You can sometimes touch art objects, which is which is which is really good. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I mean, I think it is an unusual thing. But I I think my 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 commitment to the Turner Contemporary is, is, is as much to do as its role in the um, economic and social transformation of the area that it sits in, as it is to do with um, you know any statements about me as a, a visually impaired person. Well, I would say over the top of it is you know, my God, I miss I miss the art you know i miss the color and the, you know just the experience of it all it, it's it's tough you know i'll be honest with you and the the art the art the, the way i live my life in order not to let that be something that that um makes me take on water you know is is, is to be active and contributing you know I, I i if we can do anything at turner contemporary for me, it would be to make sure that those those young people in particular, perhaps that were like me or otherwise that don't see themselves as having much hope or prospects can can connect to something that shows that there are many, many pathways, you know, through life. And and I don't think that being blind or otherwise changes that in relation to art for me because I lived it myself. You know, I I I, I wouldn't you know, honestly wouldn't have, have I didn't know what university was when I was a kid. And I went to university first in my family. You know, I think honestly, that's to do with the commitment and belief that a teacher placed in me, and the exposure to other opportunities. And what I'd say is that, that where the site, if a site loss had kicked in earlier, and that would have been another barrier to overcome for me. And um, this is why the, you know, certainly what we're doing at Vision Foundation and Fight for Sight. You know, you can see like treating eye disease and saving sight, slowing slowing the loss of sight down, and making investments that create pathways for people to engage socially, culturally in the community are utterly critical but you know we also you know we blind people are also citizens you know and i think there's there's uh, you know the involvement i have in turner is as much about that for me that for me is not about my sight loss that for me is about what i want for the community that i'm part of and um, you know it's about giving back i am one of the luckiest people that i know i really do feel privileged keith i think that's a, a perfect place to finish and i just want to to thank you for your for your time and it's been fascinating um, hear you sort of walk us through your journey 
and I will wish you all the best with the with the merger. Yeah, thank you. There's a, there's a few 60-hour weeks to go yet, but I think we'll get there. <laughs> thank you, Keith. This episode of the OT Podcast is supported by the Association of Optometrists, who want you to know that one in every 11 patients on an NHS waiting list in England is awaiting an ophthalmology appointment. That's over 600,000 people. Of those, more than 27,000 have been waiting for over a year. The AOP is calling on the government to take urgent action. We're facing a health emergency that is piling pressure on hospital eye departments, but community optometrists are trained and ready to help. We can step in to end this eye care crisis. With immediate action, we can cut wait times, improve outcomes for patients, and reduce preventable sight loss. The AOP's campaign, Sight Won't Wait, demands that the government acts now so that no one has to wait so long for an appointment that it risks preventable sight loss. Visit aop.org.uk slash sightwontwait to find out more and support the AOP's campaign.